Hello, all you lovely listeners, and welcome back to Season 3 of Therapy Works, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as you might have guessed, a psychotherapist. Each week, I invite you into my therapy room, where I'll be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice who will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. The mission of this podcast is to expand our understanding of therapy and prove that meaningful conversations that may contain difficult emotions can be profoundly healing. Let's see who is joining us this week. Hello, Meg Fowler. I am thrilled that you've joined us on this podcast. Um, You are a mother of two, a New Zealander who's lived here for many, many years. And you're a news producer. As you know, my first question to all my guests is, tell me about a challenge you're facing or have had to overcome. Um, I think the greatest challenge I've had to overcome is becoming a mother, becoming Mm. a a mother and having my own family. Um, And that was a process that I started as an older woman and as a gay woman. So I had some hurdles, uh, a lot of hurdles to overcome to try and get to the place I wanted to be. Should we start at the beginning maybe of that challenge of the complexity of becoming a, a mother as a gay woman. Yeah, that that's right. There are a lot of elements to overcome, but so, sort of interestingly, that wasn't my greatest challenge. Um, my greatest challenge was I found myself in my late thirties in a long-term relationship that was not going to provide me uh, the the basis to create that family. Um, and that was a became a major problem for me. The difficulty of when you're with someone who you really love, but what you both want is not aligned, hmm. is so impossibly difficult. It was the worst situation to ever find myself in. You know, I'd been in a long-term relationship for 12 years. Um, at the outset of that, I th- I thought maybe I'm remembering incorrectly I thought we both wanted the same thing but time just changes you then you stop talking about the really long-term goals well I certainly did and I just found myself in a situation where I I didn't want to be there anymore and the whole ch- process of change trying to rejig my life to get it back to where I wanted it to be was uh, kicked off by grief unsurprisingly my father um, died, and that just changed everything for me. Now, how did it change everything for you? Uh, I just realised that life is short. It is what you make of it, and take some risks. I remember it was a it was a really terrible time in my life. Uh, he was very unwell for several years in New Zealand, and I was living here. Um, so that in itself is a nightmare, the time difference, the miles apart. How long ago was it? Sorry to ask. Uh, he died seven years ago this Christmas. So I, I actually took a year sabbatical from my work, which was an amazing opportunity to be able to do that. And my partner at the time did come with me. And so I, I spent one year with him, not not Gosh. long before he died, um, with my family um, because I wanted to be there with everybody. Um 
But that's a big decision and something I imagine it gives you immense comfort now that he has died, that you spent, you prioritised him and your time with him to that degree. I did, although there is this um, huge sadness that I actually left before he died. I had one year to take from work and I had I had a great job, still have a great job, so I, I chose to come back to that. And so the last time I saw him was on my birthday and I, I thought I'd see him again, but I, I didn't. And I returned home uh, two, two days after he died. So it's a long way away and I just couldn't make it back. So that's, that's always at the back of my mind actually. But subsequently, the things that I've learned from that pain have changed my life forever. So it's a mix of grief, uh, sadness, but hope too. So what did you learn? What is it that you learned that changed your life so dramatically? Well, I come from a very big family. Uh, I'm the youngest of six children, a New Zealand Catholic family. Uh, we have a load of cousins, close, close. Uh, a tribe. Um, a tribe, and we have a lot of fun. And it was at my father's funeral that everyone was upset, of course, but I just remember being devastated beside myself. And even my mother at the time was, she knew that was something else going on, not just this awful death we were all dealing with, but something more. And it was that. I just remember being at the graveside and I could hear his voice in my head saying, have that family. You need to have your own family. And it was that moment that I, th I thought, oh, great, thanks, thank you. How am I going to do that? I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure how this is going to pan out, but that was the message I got. And from then, I don't think I haven't looked back. Gosh, so that is like a Damascene, is that the right word? Moment where in that moment, everything changed. Everything changed. The relationship where you kind of didn't have the important conversations, but you knew beneath there was this thing that you really wanted, but it wasn't in the front of your mind. And then somehow at your dad's graveside, there was this absolute clarity of mm. you want your own family. And so that informed all the decisions in your life that you took from then on. That's absolutely right. And even after that moment, I remember this sort of weight had lifted off me. I mean, I've, I felt confused and scared because there was a lot of things that had to change in my life to get to where I wanted to be. But I, it was a clarity. And I guess we all have a few moments in the, of those in our lives. And that was the one for me. It's because not knowing is more, in some ways, more disturbing and kind of crazy making than even the pain of knowing. Because the pain of knowing gives you a direction of where you're heading, whereas not knowing you feel stuck and like you're in mud. You feel stuck, confused, in a, in a sort of a, a spin. You can't Limbo, get out. Yeah. Limbo. So, yeah, from that moment, things changed quickly. Talk us through it. Well, the, the difficult part, well, the devastating really part of all of this is that I was in a long-term relationship that I uh, had to get out of. Um, I'd, I'd met someone else during this time as well. Um, so there were serious complications in, involved in that and things I'm really not proud of. Um, mm. 
And that took a lot of time, pain, hurt, guilt to mm. get through. Yeah, sounds messy. So you'd like it to be like one chapter closed and another chapter started, but your experience wasn't that. It certainly wasn't that. And it's something in my life I'm really not proud of. I think, you know, I say there were, I had this clarity after my father died, but it didn't make it seamless. It was hard. I, uh, I was a real mess and I made some mistakes. But at the end of it all, I've, I found the love of my life and the other mother to our children. So there's a, there is light at the end of it, but there was a period of real darkness in there. You know, I lost a lot of friends, my family, um, not my mother. Um, and through all of this, she's been my greatest supporter. Um, oh, good for her. <laughs> she, she's good amazing. For she's amazing. Um, but yeah, I lost some of my family members were upset that I was, you know, ending this long-term relationship and embarking on something which, um, I think one of my brothers described as absurd, what an mm. absurdity to try and want to be a mother at this stage of my life. However, I that sounds through. like it cut deep. That, that oh yeah, those words. Yeah, it took a long time for that to repair itself, but we we've worked through it. You know, that's when relationships end and things get messy and people get hurt. There's a lot of fallout mm. for friends and family. So the challenge of becoming a mother, that was the first aspect of finding someone to share your life with who wanted the same as you, wanted to be a mother as well. Um, and that sounds both, I guess, exciting and happy-making and painful and difficult and brought a lot of pain for you. But given that you're together and you'd made the decision, how was it becoming a parent together as two gay women? Hard, really hard, expensive, hard, took a long time, took fortitude and sacrifice. And uh, anyone who's been through fertility treatment will know or knows someone who's been through it will know that it's it's everything you expect it to be, but a lot more. Um, so once we'd made the decision, which we made very, very quickly, because time was against us and we How wanted to... How old were you at that point? Uh, 39. Right. Um, my mother had me actually when she was 40, so I've always felt that being an older mum was not just possible but great. Um, mm. So I had hope. Um, first of all, we had to find uh, a donor um, and so the person that uh, my partner Claire uh, wanted the most was her twin brother. Gosh. Um, so that conversation had to be had. Um, and she had that conversation with him while I was out of the country visiting my family, which is, um, a, you know, that's the way she wanted to do it. They're very, very close. Obviously he has his own family. Um, and after a lot of thought and discussions with his loved ones, he agreed. And so We'd made the first step and then we had to obviously find the right clinic. Obviously, I was going to carry the babies. Um, yes. So and... he was, I mean, that is, <laughs> I haven't heard that before, but I guess that is the closest to her 
being genetically the parent, her twin brother. And that's obviously the first protocol. I mean, a lot of people that I've worked with have gone to sperm donor banks and gone through that. It's sort of like dating almost, you know, going through images yeah. and CVs. So, but you went the personal route and he, he agreed and his partner and family agreed. His uh, his ex wife, who he's very close to, <laughs> agreed, and his uh, his children were they were delighted. So, uh, yeah, I think he took counsel from a lot of people, and we always say that that one decision that he made, that one yes, yes, I will do this, or yes, I will try to help, has changed my life, Claire's life, has created two children. Like one decision can make so much difference. Every day that shocks me, you know if things have been different, my life would be different. And that's the thing, I guess, the sort of message you're wanting to get across, that one good decision can be transformational for many, many people. For dozens of people. Um, so I will forever grateful, forever grateful, you know. I can see you light up. Yeah, <laughs> oh, my as you goodness. Say that. I mean, I just love him. Of course I do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's probably quite like Claire. He is. They're very similar, the twins. Mm-hmm. So, I'm a twin to a brother. I have a twin brother. You do? Yeah, yeah. I just love their relationship. It's so lovely to mm-hmm. watch. You know, it's, they have their ups and downs, but a twin is special. And that's, it's quite funny. Sometimes we're out with the children because our little girl looks a lot like Claire. And people who don't know the background, <laughs> and I'll say, Oh, she looks so much like Claire, or she's so much like Claire. And people who don't know obviously think, well, she's, was she, why is she saying that? I mean, they're gay parents. How can she look like the one that Claire. is not the biological mother? And I always sort of chuckle to myself because actually, well, the genes are right there, both yeah, sets yeah. of genes. So that's quite nice for us. So we're talking about the celebration and you've got your two children, but I know a lot of people listening to this podcast have suffered so much through infertility treatment, the not knowing of the treatment as one phase, then miscarriage as the possibility of one in four pregnancies ends in miscarriage. And you you mentioned to me before that you miscarried. And so the the road to a successful baby in your arms has been extremely difficult. It was awful, actually. Of course, it had its positives because I mean uh one I was pregnant three times out of four actually all in all we did seven rounds of fertility treatment gosh for for our first child so and um, that's all private because that's so expensive yeah it's all private so it's a lot of money so we did three rounds of um something called IUI which is very sort of low-grade entry-level fertility treatment if you like I guess it's important to remember as a gay woman I didn't necessarily have fertility issues I just needed help to get pregnant so we thought well we'll we'll try this initially um it's cheaper it's more straightforward and I you know foolishly now thought I'd get pregnant first time I just thought that my mum had six kids. My my grandma had ten kids. You know, there was no fertility issues, as far as I could see. That is completely untrue. You know, once you start learning about fertility, you understand that it's very hard to get pregnant, especially when you're older. I think the especially when you're older is the big thing, isn't it? Isn't that yeah. the the big factor? Yeah, there's a big drop off after say thirty five. 
no, I, no, I didn't. I didn't take any of that very seriously. Naive, I suppose. Well, full of hope. You're, I mean, as you come across, I've never met you, but you seem that you go to hope first, which is not a bad place. But in some ways, when that hope is bashed in your face, it's quite crushing. It was crushing. So we did these three rounds. And <clears throat> I remember at the outset of that, I said to Claire, oh, we we'll never do full IVF because A, we won't have to, and B, it's too expensive, and C, we'll probably just give up by then. And then after mm. three rounds, yeah doctor suggested it might be time to try IVF and there was no way I wasn't going to do that. Anyone, again, who's been on this road or knows someone who has been, once you start, it's almost impossible to stop. So the failure each time, can you talk me through a little bit for those who want to understand more or kind of recognise themselves that you have the treatment, which is one thing, and then the waiting to see if it's worked and the cycle of it? First of all, you have to get yourself quite ready physically. Um, you know, get a lot of advice about food, health, etc. I, I ran a lot when my dad died. I started running marathons, and I couldn't stop running. Um, and it, it was when we started the full IVF, you know, into our fourth round of fertility treatment. Our doctor, who is incredible, she said, "You have to stop running. This is taking a big toll on your body." And it was, yeah, it was my thing. It was my sort of mind space, but I did stop running and it, I, I don't know, maybe she was right because it, it happened. Um, so you make a lot of changes to your lifestyle and then you take these drugs and you inject yourself every day and they have lots of side effects. You feel ill and sick um, and bloated and, and yeah, it's not pleasant. Although I think I was quite lucky. I didn't feel as bad as some people I know. Um, and I was so committed. It was sort of like, no pain, no gain. But I remember being at work and having to take my sort of break and run to the to the bathroom to do my injections and you had to keep them in the fridge, so I had to keep them in the work fridge without anyone knowing in my lunchbox. I mean, there was a lot of subterfuge and putting on a show for work and yet this secret that's going on in below the waterline or in the fridge. <laughs> Yeah, in the fridge and having to uh, go to the fertility clinic like once a week, have the test, see if you're ready, trying to fit that in into a busy life, you know, like, but you do it. And we did it. Um, and so on the, f the fourth round, I actually got pregnant. So we were delighted, kind of surprised that it had happened after three failed attempts. Finding out that it didn't work is a loss, isn't it? Because it's the loss of the Just, dream of what you hope for. As soon as I got the news, I was planning how I was going to approach the next one. I was like, okay, that's that's really bothered me, but I want to know when, as soon as I can start, can I start in two weeks? Where do I get the drugs? It was obsessive, as you said before. Um, and then when we did get pregnant this fourth time, um, but it, it wasn't viable. It only lasted a, a short period of time. The thing with fertility treatment oh. is you have so many tests, but, Again, I felt hopeful because I actually got pregnant. So that obviously wasn't a full miscarriage. That was just what they call a chemical pregnancy, which means there's a start, but it doesn't go any further than that. Um, there was another round and then round six. That's when we were pregnant and we were really pregnant. The hormone levels were high. We just were like, this is it. We've done it six rounds later and we, we're, we are on our way. And I can hear in your voice, like the breath you took then is like excitement. It's like 
Yeah. Well, we were 10 weeks in, you know, this we were, I told my family, Claire told her family, a, a very close, you know, small group of trusted friends knew, um, Claire's brother knew, of course, and then, and then we lost that oh, uh, no. baby at just after 10 weeks. And that oh, was crushing. Me. You know, we talk about not getting pregnant and, but that I will never forget that day. Claire and I often talk about it actually as that day. It's like the worst day of your life that day. Yeah, I think it was. I remember everything about that day. I remember the weather. I remember the route we walked home from the hospital. I remember, mm -hmm. yeah, just I think after s six rounds of treatment, thousands and thousands of pounds later, time is creeping by. That's maybe the last chance. I remember my mum saying to me, maybe it's time to accept that this is not going to happen. Yeah. Well, I might have said the same thing to my child because as a parent watching your child suffer, there's only so much you can bear them to kind of face. I sort of felt like, how can you give up on me too? So you were furious. Yeah, I didn't want not to Not furious, that. but... I wasn't no. furious. I was, I felt like if you're going to give up on me, you're my greatest supporter. How am I going to keep going? But that day, what you woke up as a normal day or you woke up with a pain in your stomach or what, what happened? I remember the, the night before the day. I'd, strange, isn't it? But women say you sort of know something's wrong. And I did. I just knew something was wrong in the night. I didn't really have a lot of pain. Um, I was just very wakeful. And there was a, a small amount of blood, but nothing that would particularly worry anyone, I don't think. Um, it's not like anything you see on, you know, on television or anything. I just felt unwell. A bit off. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually started, you know, I got up the next day ready to go to work. I remember I got the train um, and I got off the train and I, I called Claire and I said, I just can't do that. I can't, I don't feel right. I need to go. I need to go to the hospital. She said, okay, I'll meet you there. So we went to... Um, we went to the early mid, well, I think we went to A&E and they sent me up to the early maternity unit because I was nearly through the first trimester. Um, and the, in the back of my mind, I still kept thinking maybe because I'm so in tune with everything that's going on with my body, you know, we've been doing this treatment for a year plus, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's, I'm being paranoid. Um, and the, the midwife did the scan and, the screeners turned away from the mum for a reason, I suppose. And then she looked at it. I was just, I was just analysing her face, and then she said, "I just have to go and get my colleague." I thought that could be a good thing or it could be a bad thing, because oh, maybe she okay. needs a colleague to say, "Oh, it's actually fine." But the colleague came in and they said, "We're really sorry, but you've miscarried the baby." Mm. It's hard, you know. A lot of women go through this. I know that now. There's no heartbeat. Yeah. And then they, you go home and they say, well, we'll call you and we'll work out how we're going to deal with what's left. And that's in itself awful. Can you remember the sensation that you experienced at that moment when she said you had a miscarriage? Almost like out of body experience. Almost like 
Is this a movie? Am I just a player in this very, very strange play? Because yesterday I was having a baby and by the end of the year, and now I'm back where I was a year and a half ago. How can that happen? How can that be? It is. It's surreal, and it changed. You know, the moment you see that blue line, and particularly after you'd got through the initial days and weeks, it's like your whole life changes. You plan the car you need, when you're going to stop work, maternity leave, where you're going to put the baby. So you grieve the future that you had every right and trust to expect in that moment, and but also you can't quite believe it in that moment. It was that awful day. Um, took, took quite a long time. I mean, in the whole scheme of things, actually not that long, but you have to have the treatment to get back on track and you have to recover physically, which I wanted to start again as soon as physically possible. So I didn't give myself much time to recover. Were you on track for that together? Because you know, often in couples, one wants to go forward more than the other and the other one needs time you know, to kind of grieve or feels too risky to put themselves in the way of danger again. And that can be complicated as a couple. But you and Claire, were you aligned? Very much so. And she always says that it was at that moment that she realized she wanted a baby more than ever before when it had been taken away from her. Mm. So obviously at the, in the shock in the, of the moment, we didn't even talk about what's going to happen next but in the days and weeks after we sort of it's sort of like you get your shoes back on you get your coat back on you get ready to go back out into that storm you can do it just you've got to take a little bit of time to look at the weather through the window before you step out that's what we did yeah so in that way you needed to let the kind of storm run through your body let the pain run through you but you wanted it more than you let the pain stop you yeah, the overriding feeling was we're going to keep trying for as long as we can. Physically, financially, we're going to keep trying. So two months later, we we went back to our doctor and we said we're ready to go. She was like, are you sure? I can help you, but are you sure you're up for the risk? Yeah, we are. And we did. And we we got pregnant the first time back again. Amazing. And... It was the worst, scariest 12 weeks possible. We didn't tell a soul. I didn't even tell my New Zealand family that we had tried again. We didn't tell anybody Yeah, because we were too terrified. Yeah, because somehow if you tell them, it makes it real. And somehow if you keep it just to the two of you, you kind of don't put it up to the gods to come and smite you down kind of thing. And also the um, reaction from both families may have been, stop, girls, just stop spending all that money and get on with your lives yeah and hurting yourself in a way Mm -hmm. anyway we went through it and the pregnancy lasted wow that is a lovely thing so those 12 weeks every day every kind of pulse in your body you thought oh my god is that a miscarriage oh it was awful I mean, luckily, the the fertility clinic was quite close to work, um, so I could sort of zip there in a lunch break or something or make an excuse and just pop out for an hour. I don't know how many times I had a scan. I'd just call the doctor and she'd say, come in, come in, it's okay. If you want to have a good weekend, I'll give you a scan before you have the weekend. I mean, she was incredible. If I would say, 
anything to people who are going through fertility treatment because it's hard and the chances are slim at times. But if you find the right doctor, it's not really about the clinic or it's about that one doctor that can work with you, help you create that family. It's not, I know I'm not foolish. I know it's it's not possible for everybody, Mm. but the right doctor can give you the best chance. And she did that for us. And in some way, the best chance isn't so much about the medical procedure. Like she, it sounds like she was really on your side and she believed in you and she believed in the possibility of you having a baby together. Yeah, she did. She did. And I know she said, um, are you really sure you want to do this, girls? And she did say it's my job to really ask because I can't just keep taking your money and your time and your hope without giving you, giving you the statistics that it's pretty unlikely. So we have uh, our daughter Indira's will be four on Sunday. Wow, that's yeah. so lovely. That must have felt extraordinary when she was born. <laughs> oh, my goodness me. I mean, you have four children. You know yeah. what it's like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's well, it's wild. different. It's wild, but it's very different coming from the experience that you had to to my experience. I think I didn't realize how lucky I was with my first child in the way that you fully realize what a miracle it is. Every child now I see, I think, what a wonder, what a miracle. But some babies take more effort to, to come into the world than others. That's what I know now. So for people listening, what helped you bear the pain of it? Of the pregnancy losses? Yeah, and the trying and the keeping going. I just knew it was going to happen. I just knew that I was going to have the baby. I just imagined it. I visualized it and Claire and I were on the same page and I just, deep down, I knew it would happen. And do you believe that manifestation and this, I know, I'll come to that, (laughs) but do you believe that manifestation and that absolute conviction supported your body to work, if you like? I do. I mean, I have a faith. I was brought up as a Catholic. Don't go to church anymore, but I do have faith. My whole family are pretty connected spiritually. My mum was very ill when I was a teenager um, for many years, nearly died several times. And we all used to just say, she's she's going to live. We used to do this um, visualization. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was only 11, but we used to do it together that she would survive this. Um, She had leukemia. She would survive this. And she did. And she always said, I'm going to survive this. I'm going to get through it. So that was sort of inbuilt in me very early on. And again, it's not always the case. I know that just because you think something's going to happen doesn't always work out. So I'm not trying to be naive about it. It's just that's that's faith though, isn't it? Hope. I mean, I it's so interesting. Obviously, I work with a lot of people where their hope wasn't successful and terrible things have happened out of the blue for no good reason that is utterly devastating. And yet I also know from the research that our immune system and our mind-body connection are completely wired together. And so if you have a stable, regulated 
system that is going for the positive rather than the negative, I imagine there's more stability for your body to work effectively to get pregnant. I'm just making that up. I don't know that medically, but the sort of mind-body thing, I think, has an impact. But then it feels, as I'm saying it, it feels cruel to people who have done exactly what you have done and they haven't got pregnant. So it feels such shaky ground, doesn't it? It is shaky ground. And, you know, there is, there's the statistics. You know, I'm a journalist, so we work with statistics all the time. That's the only thing sometimes that you can rely on to tell a story. And I remember saying to my fellow journalist friend, with fertility treatment, you kind of got to ignore the statistics. If I believed in those stats, I remember the second time we went to have our second baby, the doctor said, you've probably got around a 7% chance of having another child. 7%, you know, so you're saying 100 rounds of fertility treatment, there are seven times that I might get pregnant. That's limited. So I felt I had to overlook those stats and believe in my body and in my sort of mind and hope. That's all I had to go on. And so looking back on it now, do you think that supported you? Because I would have said... Knowing that you're in the 7% bracket and still having hope, you hold both. You hold the reality that you have a tiny, tiny chance and you go for the hope. And you're saying, I completely overrode that. I couldn't think about that. How can you throw thousands of pounds at 7%? If you were a gambler, everyone would say you're crazy. There's no different. When she said that to Claire and I, I remember Claire's mouth dropping. I almost sort of laughed because what's what's a statistic? At the end of the day, this baby's going to happen or it's not, and I'm going to give it my best try by by ignoring that. (laughs) And so that was for the second pregnancy. That was for the that was for the second baby. Yeah. So did that happen immediately? Was that the, the the your last IVF treatment? And that happened a year after Indira was born. Uh, when India was five months old, we decided that we wanted to have another baby. Um, and at seven months, I needed a little bit of time to recover. At seven months, we started fertility treatment. And he was conceived first time round. With your brother-in-law, who was the dad? Correct. First round after seven rounds with her, one round with him. Um, so was that a different pregnancy? Did you could you relax more? Could you enjoy it more? Could you trust more? <laughs> yeah, I really did. I didn't worry at all. Well, of course, there's worry, of course. But I remember um, I did say to Claire when we started with Rocco, I said, I wouldn't be surprised if I get pregnant first time this time. I've just got this feeling. And she was like, just hang on, hold your horses. <laughs> She's a little bit more practical than me. Um, and when they called me, cause with fertility treatment, you don't do a, well, I chose not to do a home pregnancy test. You go in and have a blood test cause it gives a more accurate reading of the hormone levels. And, and I remember they called me, I was at work just about to, there was just putting a show to air. They called two minutes before, before we were meant to be on air. And, uh, I said, we've got some good news. Yeah. You're pregnant. Um, in fact, the hormone levels are so high, there might be multiple babies. 
And I was like, oh my goodness, well, great, but I don't, it doesn't matter. I'm pregnant. And we went back to the clinic and they said, yeah, you're, you're not just pregnant. You're really pregnant. This baby really wants to happen. It was only one, it was only one baby. Um, and I remember that it's a, it's a very strange thing to remember, but when, um, the embryo was put in, you know, during the fertility treatment with him, that one round that we did that was successful. I remember the doctor showing the embryo on the screen, on a big screen just before I went in saying, this is the perfect embryo. I was like, what do you mean? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we don't know what's going on inside, but the cellular makeup is, you couldn't ask for a better opportunity. This is your best chance. Lo and behold. (laughs) <laughs> and Rock is now three. He'll be three in, in the summer, yeah. So there's 16 months between the two. Amazing, amazing. It doesn't sound from you speaking that being a, a gay couple has been a challenge really, or am I assuming that because you haven't talked about it? No, no, not really at all. Um, I think maybe the first time we went to a, a clinic, that there was I remember there was a a nurse that I kind of got a feeling that she wasn't particularly comfortable with the situation. So we changed clinics actually. Um, we, <laughs> st- 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 we stuck with the same doctor, um, but we changed clinics just because I, I didn't got any time for that. No. You know, I haven't got time for any negativity. This is my life, my body. Uh, I think being a gay woman, you know, I came out when I was, and. Uh, around 20 yeah. and I couldn't ask, you know, it was a, quite a long time ago. I couldn't ask mm. for a more supportive family or mother at that time. You know, I was her baby, baby girl. Probably the last thing that she wanted at the end of six kids was a gay child because it comes with that worry and stress. And like I said, she's been my greatest supporter, never, ever flinched. So I think I come from a good basis. Lucky, you know, lucky. How many? That is luck, isn't it? You know, if you look at all of the weather that we go through in life and the randomness of life, I guess one of the things that we have absolutely no control over is who we're born to, where we're born, and, of course, that will influence enormously our capacity to manage the difficulties of life. Like having a good, loving mum, a loving family, that gives you a lot of robustness and secure attachment to have the psychological capacity to weather those six pregnancy attempts to keep going, And whereas it might have literally knocked out somebody else. I think so. I mean... I feel like uh, as a family, we've faced quite a lot of challenges. Your mum being very ill when you were young, for one. Yeah. You know, I've lived abroad a long time, but we've managed to keep our relationships very close. I speak to my mum every other day on FaceTime. She talks to the children. So it has taken work. I think you kind of, I know it sounds, it does sound cliche, but you do get out of relationships what you put in. I've learned that. Mm. Um, and I've always felt very invested in, with my siblings and my parents. So it's given me a good basis, I think. And spirituality, we, 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 we had a good faith. And I think it's, it's just a basis to 
launch yourself from, isn't it? And I'm not saying that things aren't hard and we have hard times, but I've been lucky enough to be given a good foundation. I mean, I think a shortcut to what you're saying is that you you have enough love and that love is in the end is what enables you to survive. Like you're given love and you're the receiving end of love. As a child, you found love with your other partner and with Claire, and you're still really loved by your mum and feel like she's your big fan. And a sort of spiritual life with hope really supports you. Doesn't mean that life isn't difficult, but it it stabilises you. It does stabilise me. And like you say, it is luck because I know lots of people who haven't had those chances or been born into a situation where they have that support and that just it's almost like you're starting life from as a handicap in a way you've got to mm. you've got to work much, so much harder to get yourself into the right space but if you've got all that love and support around you you're a team and you're everyone's stronger as a team I think yeah and maybe the message is for those that aren't born with it is that you can still find it that it isn't that isn't a done deal that you can find your family outside of your family um, through forming, working on close relationships. Yeah, I 100% agree with that because I've lived thousands of miles away from my own family for 16 years. The friends that have stuck with me through that difficult time, they feel like family. Mm. People that I've known, you know, have worked with here in, in the UK for 16 years, they're my chosen family as well. So mm. it's not just about my flesh and blood. It's about the people that surround me and Claire and the children that it's all family to me. Yeah, You can create it. I think you really can. I think those loving bonds, it's fantastic if you're born with them and we have the capacity to love and grow with bonds that we make. And particularly in kind of blended families, I think the biology is over amplified when it's the love that really matters. We're coming to the end. Do you have a question for me? I do. Oh, okay. Um, my question to you is, I, you know, I listen to your podcast and I, I've known of your work for a, a long time and you speak to people who have had some major challenges in their life, some with terrible pain and trauma. How do you find or can you find hope in everyone's story? I think uh, having done this for over three decades, My experience is that when really terrible things happen to people, you can't stop that being just utterly devastating and that that will always be part of them, that you don't kind of fix it and move on. If given the right support, and I think that is key, this extraordinary capacity to survive and even thrive the most unbearable losses. The way you kept going is an example of that in in the way that you've talked about your experience. But I think it it requires support and a lot of courage and the willingness to feel both the pain and to want to be okay, to want to go forward. Thank you. Yeah, I I do wonder sometimes in a job like yours, how do you help people find the light when they're in the darkness? Because 
it takes something or someone special to help people through that. I don't know that I find them the light. I think coming through my door, they want light because if yeah. they don't want help, that, that you know, so I think that is their first step. Like they show hope when they come through my door. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes I hold on to the hope for them when they can't hold on to it for themselves. Well, you do a great job. Oh, well, lovely talking to you, Meg. And may you and Claire and all of your family enjoy your gorgeous children. Thank you so much. Really so great to talk to you. Lovely to talk to you. One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialise in different forms of therapy, it is really interesting to see what their takeaways are, what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything. But let's hear what their thoughts are this week. Hi, Emily and Sophie. So we're going to talk about Meg and her kind of journey to being a mum, which was not a simple or straightforward one. So I sort of thought the beginning of her story was quite striking, that experience of losing her her dad dying and that being this transformational moment for the choices in her life where she quite dramatically changed direction, changed her relationship and sort of had this clarity moment, didn't she, of gosh, I really want a family. And it felt like to her that it came from her dad. She could hear him in her head. I feel like colloquially you hear that as something that can happen for people. But mum is someone who's talked to a lot of people in who... Miss Death. (laughs) Queen of Death, as we call you. Is that true? Is that what you've experienced? Yes, I think there is, like Meg said, it changed everything, that there's that moment of death where it clarifies and crystallises what matters to you most. Because I think as a child, you realize when your parent dies, you realize in a way that you didn't know before that you are mortal, that your life is limited. And in recognizing your mortality, you have this light between two darknesses. You kind of crystallizes, well, what do I want in this light, in this life of mine? And, you know, for Meg, it was an incredibly complex decision. She loved mm. her partner. She really loved it. They'd been together seven years. So ending a relationship because you don't want the same things. I mean, many people listening, there are many relationships where couples, one wants a baby and one doesn't. It is by no means an easy conversational thing to, to resolve. No, because a lot of things you can compromise on, right? Like you can kind of meet in the middle of you know, I want to live here, you want to live there, all of those sorts of things. There are actually ways around it, but you either have a child or you don't have a child. It's a really binary thing. So there's no middle ground of like having half a child, you know? It was interesting to me that lots of her sort of reaction of the family, the ripple effects of her decisions were seen as, I can't remember if the word was, there was something that one of her brothers said. She said it was messy, but someone said something quite full on to her about it looking really mad from the outsiders 
dramatic decision that she was mad to try and have children at this point in her life or something like that. And I was sort of thinking in my head, how do you know both, and there's not an answer to this, but both inside and outside, when you're feeling these big transformational shifts and they compressed into a short time frame, right? Rather than like gradual change over time. Am I losing something here or am I actually moving towards alignment? No, hers ended up, it was a movement towards alignment, wasn't it? It was this shedding of things and this realignment and clarity. But in the moment, it's never as clear as that. It's, does that make sense? All the people who cared about her and who loved her were sort of saying, what are you doing? Mm. This causing pain to yourself. I mean, I think, I imagine her family were saying that from Care. a place of love of like, it's unbearable to see you putting yourself through this pain. And it's such a personal thing, right? I don't think there is a right or a wrong or, or a line. I think you just have to sort of trust your own instincts. And it sounds like one thing she was really, really good at is saying like, my body is telling me this, I need to mm. do it. And I am going to have to zone out what other people are saying to me, including professionals and family, because I know that I need to do this for me. Um, and I'm sure it wasn't that simple, but I think there is usually inside of us, if we can kind of tune into it enough, a sort of inner instinct of what is right for us, which wouldn't be the same for the next person. And one way a sort of psychoanalytic perspective of that is that Christopher Bolas talks about the unthought known, that you can't quite let yourself think about something, but you know it underneath. I think we often ignore what our unconscious and what our instincts inform us of when as a society and people individually we need our peers to support us and so I think it takes for anyone listening I think it takes enormous courage as Sophie in a way was talking about you were saying too it takes enormous courage to trust I am going to go with what I don't fully know but what I sense mm -hmm. I know and that is by no means an easy thing to do but I also know from many clients that people who don't listen to themselves fully and don't trust themselves fully, they can be really hampered by many regrets. You know, why didn't I? If only, you know, I should have. I sort of knew I'd said mm. to so-and-so I was going mm -hmm. to, and then I didn't. We were relational beings. We want our team on our side. So going against people who are insignificant to us, it's really hard. I think it's also about the narrative arc of it because her story had a happy ending. She got two babies. And I suppose it's also, but she didn't know that was going to happen, right, when she was making those decisions. And so I suppose for her, I imagine the consideration of what people in a similar situation is even if I don't get the outcome that I'm desperate for, would I still have rather tried this last time. And I was going to add to that, that that conflict can not only be between that gut feeling and other people, but often in my experience, in, both for myself and with clients, that there can be a battle zone between your feeling, your gut sense, and then your mind worrying, doubting, 
rationalizing, for example, bringing in the facts or the stats and and that that ends up being quite a war zone between what well, my head is saying, this is completely irrational, but my gut is saying, do it. My heart. Or my heart. And that trusting that, I think, I know for myself, you talked about regret, mum. If I make choices from that place, from that gut place, from that instinctual place, it's much harder to have a regret even when it goes wrong because you felt like you weren't betraying something that was really integral to you. Does that make sense? Good words, Soph. Yeah. If I live my life in alignment with that, then whatever happens, I think I can be okay with. Listening to her made me really think about this cycle of life and death and, you know, her father died and now she has sort of new life and there's something really beautiful and sort of cyclical about that. And um, this might be a bit personal and a bit woo-woo, but um, I think I've talked before about um, my, our first child was conceived by IVF and they actually transferred two embryos. So he originally was a twin and both embryos um, survived and were, um, you know, growing. And then we went to the 10-week scan and one of the embryos didn't have a heartbeat, um, which was obviously incredibly sad. And they said to me, one of two things will happen. Either you will, the embryo will just kind of be expelled and you'll have some bleeding. So if you have some bleeding, let us know, but like, don't worry about it. It's just the embryo coming out. But actually what happened is that every time I went back for another scan, because I like, if you do IVF, you tend to have quite <laughs> more scans. Then I, I could see our son growing, but I could also every time see the embryo still there. Like it didn't go anywhere and exactly my son was growing and growing and then at some point I, I couldn't see the other embryo anymore and I sort of said to the doctor like I didn't ever bleed or anything so like what happened to the embryo and um she told me that the embryo will have just been reabsorbed into the uterus lining and so essentially our son was sort of being nurtured by the other twin. And I, mm. <laughs> it's quite sort of emotional mm. to talk about, but there was something very, again, that sort of proximity of, of life and death that somewhere in him is also his twin. And listening to her talk, it just really, really made me think about that cycle. That's so moving, Emily. You've never told that to me. I don't think I've heard that before. That's incredibly beautiful. So inside inside him, I feel like it's a bit of history. Makes me want to give him an extra squeeze. <laughs> also, what came up for me from listening to Meg is the randomness of life and luck and hope behind a lot of our wishes and dreams is wanting to have control and to have power and, and to make our dreams come true. With Meg, she was born into a loving family. She had wonderful parents and siblings. That is random to some extent, but that sustained her to manage a lot of difficulty and adversity. But I was also thinking for other people listening about IVF is that decision to keep trying of to have hope, to go for it, to go against the statistics or friends and family. 
And when is it false hope? And when is it hope that it's worth fighting for? And then I think there's lots of people, you know, at least in England, the NHS will fund a certain amount. And then after that, if you don't have any money, then actually there's not really a choice to keep going or not. Um, so some people, I guess, you don't even get that decision and that must be incredibly painful. She says at one point, in terms of hope and when to keep going and when to let go, she says at one point, I've really learned that what I put into relationships, I get out. And I had the sort of same double thought as opposed of, yes, and if the other person is up for the work too. <laughs> no, you can be in a relationship <laughs> where there is a point where you go, what I put in, I'm not going to get out because this person's not in in with it with me, even if it's messy or hard. And those, I know for myself, that's going to be a really hard decision. When to let go, when to keep trying in relationships. Um, and it's not, it's not a clear line, is it? I know for myself, sometimes something might be really bothering me or annoying me or something about my partner and sometimes I just am like I just feel lazy <laughs> I, just, I feel like oh. <laughs> even though it's really annoying me I, I can't really I just can't quite face the effort and also maybe in those situations it's because the thing is small but maybe there's something mm. like bigger underneath and that on the whole it's better to just do it just say it yes <laughs> have the hard conversation mm. sometimes Absolutely. I'm so grateful to Meg for being so open and having such a powerful conversation that covered such key topics. I mean, there isn't bigger topics really than birth, death, hope and love. And we, we certainly covered them, of course, never enough. So thanks to Meg. Thank you, Sophie and Emily. And thank you to all our listeners. If this is an episode you think would help a friend of yours, do share it. Do rate and review the podcast and we look forward to you listening next week.